enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. This suggestion came from my mother over dinner, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's only a little bit technical, and uh, sadly, I have already used the supermassive black hole song by Muse in a previous podcast, so I can't pull it up again this episode. It's so disappointing. But you know what's not disappointing? Quasars and blazars. They can never disappoint you. They're very distant galaxies. Because they're so distant, this also means that they're very old. The further away something is from us in space, the older it is. This is a complicated concept with a lot of math behind it. I've just accepted it at face value, and maybe you should too. The concept is that galaxies that are further away from Earth are older than galaxies that are closer to Earth. It's based partially on perspective, and mostly on the fact that light travels so enormously fast. By the time the light from very distant galaxies or stars reaches Earth, the galaxy itself is way further along its evolutionary cycle. This means the stars and galaxies we see are actually a snapshot of history. They're what that object looked like years ago, when the light first started traveling to Earth. If we could teleport there right now, we'd find a galaxy that looked completely different. Quasars and blazars are all extremely distant from Earth. We haven't found any that are close. This means that we're getting a very old view of what they look like. It also suggests that these galaxy types might be the early stages of galactic evolution. We're getting a galaxy's baby pictures when we see a quasar or blazar. There are also two of the three subcategories of an active galaxy. An active galaxy is a galaxy with a small core of emission embedded at the center. This core is very variable and very bright compared to the rest of the galaxy. I've discussed how galaxy brightness is measured based on the collective brightness of the stars in a galaxy, but in an active galaxy, this core is the brightest thing in it. It's called an active galactic nucleus, and from what I was reading, active galaxy and active galactic nucleus, or AGN, are interchangeable unless you are getting very specific about the parts of a galaxy. I'll just call them active galaxies for clarity's sake. An active galaxy emits much more energy than it should. This excess energy can be found in the infrared, radio, ultraviolet, and X-ray regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. The reason for all this energy lies in how active galaxies differ from normal galaxies. All galaxies can be found in three different shapes, elliptical, spiral, and irregular. These shapes can be broken down further. Bar galaxies are like a spiral galaxy, but with a longer bar shape through the center that then has trails of clouds, gas, and stars coming off the tips of the bar to make a spiral shape. Irregular galaxies are just what they sound like, where they don't have a clear shape and they're not symmetrical in any way. Elliptical galaxies are like a smushed sphere, and they look like ovals of light. Neither irregular nor elliptical galaxies have a particular axis of rotation, unlike spiral galaxies. 
Normally, galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their center. That's still true of an active galaxy, but its supermassive black hole is sucking in material from the galaxy's dense center. As that material falls in toward the black hole, its momentum causes it to spiral in and form a disk. I've definitely mentioned it before, but this is a very hot accretion disk under the intense gravitational and frictional forces. Now, we're in theoretical territory here, and so we're going to pour out a little splash from the cup of knowledge in memory of Stephen Hawking, who died last week on March 14th, 2008, Pi Day and Einstein's birthday. He did a lot of work on black hole theory, and that's a major part of the current model of galaxy structures. Models of active galaxies include a region of cold gas and dust, which is thought to be in the shape of a giant donut, with the black hole and the accretion disk nestled in the donut's hole. If you want to sound smart, you can call this donut shape a torus. That's spelled T-O-R-U-S. In roughly one out of every ten active galaxies, the black hole and accretion disk produce narrow beams of energetic particles which are ejected outward in opposite directions away from the disk. So picture a donut with a big spray of powdered sugar coming out of each side of the hole and spewing perpendicular to the donut's body. Donut's body? Sure. Why not? These jets of powdered sugar, I mean, they're electrical particles, they shoot out at 99.9% of the speed of light and are a powerful source of radio waves. There are a few different types of active galaxies. Their types and properties are determined by factors like the mass of the central black hole, the rate of accretion, how powerful the jet is, or if one exists at all, and the angle at which we view the galaxy. Quasars and blazars are all different types of active galaxies that have strong jets, powerful enough to travel into the depths of intergalactic space. The word quasar is a contraction of quasi-stellar radio source, a term that American astrophysicist Hong Yi Chu coined in 1964 to reduce that mouthful of a title. The history of the discovery of quasars is really a narrowing of star categories as we expanded our understanding of extragalactic objects, meaning objects that are outside of our Milky Way galaxy. In the late 50s, astronomers had been finding radio sources that they couldn't see, they thought it was a kind of background noise from the Milky Way stars at first, and called them radio stars. Then John Bolton, Gordon Stanley, and Owen Bruce Slee used our old friends, interferometers, in Australia and New Zealand to measure the positions of three strong radio sources. They had discovered the first radio galaxies, though they didn't realize it when they published their findings in 1949 under the title Positions of Three Discrete Sources of Galactic Radio Frequency Radiation they still thought they'd pinpointed radio stars. In 1954, Walter Bade and Rudolf Minkowski realized that the radio stars were actually in very faint galaxies, which changed the perception of these radio sources. Astronomers now thought that these radio sources were radio galaxies, not stars, and the fainter radio sources might have even larger redshifts than, that were beyond the limits of the most powerful telescopes at the time. This means that the radio galaxies were emitting such strong radio frequencies they could still be detected, even when optical telescopes couldn't detect their presence. This also means that the radio galaxies had spectra that could be observed to determine their redshift and therefore their distance from Earth. 
Some were too far from Earth to even tell how far they were. In the later 1950s, astronomers managed to match up several of these radio sources with very dim visible objects that looked like stars, but their spectra had a lot of excess ultraviolet light. One of these objects that I saw come up several times has a very boring name, 3C273. It was a cool extragalactic object, though, because astronomer Cyril Hazard and his colleagues measured its position very accurately using something called lunar occultations in 1960. A man who had the last name Hazard used lunar occultations to measure a quasar. This sounds like a heavy metal lyric or something. I can picture the album cover, lots of black and gunmetal gray and a picture of the moon. <laughs> lunar occultations, for your reference, are when stars pass behind the moon. It helps astronomers to map star positions. But back to 3C273. In 1962, using the position Hazard and Company had recorded, Danish astronomer Martin Schmidt obtained the object's spectrum, which showed that it had a massive redshift. 3C273 was receding at a rate of 47,000 kilometers per second, or about 30,000 miles per second. That is extremely fast. So the result of all this observation and research was the new understanding that these objects, previously called radio stars, then called quasi-stellar radio sources, now called quasars, have large redshifts. So they're all very far away and continue to move away from us very fast. And they have ridiculously large radio and optical luminosities. They're very bright and very loud, basically. Very fast moving, very bright, very loud. I feel like I'm describing a character or a friend... <laughs> That's quasars, though. It was in 1969 that supermassive black holes were first introduced to power quasars, and now they are thought to play a major role in the formation and evolution of galaxies. More recent research began in 2008 with the launch of the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which is able to detect much more gamma radiation than ever before. In a TED Talk in 2015, Astrophysicist Jadida Isler addressed the leaps in understanding that are being made as astronomers and astrophysicists compare photographs of quasars over time to see how fast acceleration is happening. Scientists have detected gamma bursts coming from the jets of quasars, and they want to know how these types of galaxies are able to accelerate particles that fast. I want to give a major shout-out to the source I got most of this historical information from. An article in the Journal of Astronomical History and Heritage, which has some additional information about later discoveries about galaxies and extragalactic objects made around the same time of Quasar's history. A guy that I've talked about who did a lot for the field of dark matter, Fritz Wicke, had some shit to say about quasars and their related discoveries, and this article contains the sassiest photograph of him. He's wearing a bolo tie, and he looks so mad. <laughs> I recommend checking it out. It's on page 11 of the article's PDF or page 277 of the journal article. There's also some nice, sneaky, non-scientific commentary on the attitude he had about his own discoveries, which I love seeing. Just little things. Uh, like the article says, quote, Characteristically, Fritz Zwicky immediately pointed out that, quote, All of the five quasi-stellar galaxies described individually by Sandage evidently belong to the subclass of compact galaxies with pure emission spectra previously discovered and described by the present writer. And then Zwicky cites his own paper. <laughs> and then the article also says, 
Quote, a few years later, Zwicky was less circumspect and wrote, quote, In spite of all these facts being known to him in 1964, Sandage attempted one of the most astounding feats of plagiarism by announcing the existence of a major new component of the universe, the quasi-stellar galaxies. Sandage's earth-shaking discovery consisted in nothing more than renaming compact galaxies, calling them interlopers and quasi-stellar galaxies, thus playing the interloper himself. And then Zwicky cites himself again. <laughs> he just wanted people to give him credit for the things he discovered. But you can tell the people who wrote this article were so incredibly done with Zwicky. <laughs> Incidentally, he's talking about Alan Sandage, who is an American astronomer credited with discovering the first quasar. Zwicky would be extremely pissed to know this is how history shook out. Anyway, our understanding of quasars today is still messy. It's really hard to get an optical look at an object, even if we know it's there because of the radio waves it's emitting. With improved observational techniques in both optical and other electromagnetic spectrum telescopes, quasars are now classified and subclassified based on their spectra and their radio, optical, and high-energy spectral distribution. I'm not positive what that means, but spectroscopy is required to subcategorize quasars as types like broad-absorption line quasars, Low Ionization Nuclear Emission Line Region, or Liner, quasars, Flat Spectrum and Steep Spectrum Radio Quasars, Radio Loud and Radio Quiet Quasars, High and Low Spectral Peaked Quasars, and objects called Beamed Quasars that are also known as Blazars. I'll touch on Blazars in just a second, but I do want to highlight that all of the names I just listed, they're very spectrum-based. The classification of quasars is very much dependent on their spectra. All right, Blazars. These are the second type of three types of active galaxy. They're rare to find because even though they are the same sort of structure as a quasar, they're extremely active, jet-emitting galaxies with a supermassive black hole at the center, they're even brighter because their jets are pointed directly at Earth, so we see them as even brighter than quasars. Some astronomers and astrophysicists think that quasars, blazars, and the third type of active galaxy, safer galaxies, are really just the same objects, but with a different perspective. In this theory, quasar jets are aimed generally towards Earth, while blazar jets are directly pointed at Earth. Seyfert galaxies don't have apparent jets, but in this theory, the lack of visible jets would be because we, on Earth, view them from the side, so no jets are pointed towards us and their emissions go undetected. And that's a quick summary of quasars and blazars for you. They are two types of active galaxy, which are galaxies that are very active in the electromagnetic spectrum, thanks to their supermassive black hole centers that shoot out jets of particles at close to the speed of light. Quasars are far away from us, moving very quickly away, and they're loud and bright. Blazars are a rarer kind of active galaxy, and they're even louder and brighter than quasars because the jets may be pointed straight at us. For the next episode, um, I still want to look into the Sophia Observatory and Chuck Yeager. And now I feel a sort of guilty desire to research Stephen Hawking and read some of his theories. If you want to hear me talk about another thing that's related to space, I take suggestions over Tumblr, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. You can also ask me to my face if you know me in real life. Subscribe on iTunes, and if you enjoy what I do, maybe give me a rating and a review. I'd love to hear what you enjoy about the podcast. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it collapses my umbrella. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to collapse your umbrella too. 
The next episode will be up on, let me see, not until April. It looks like April 3rd. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of the people that I mentioned, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.